0: but will showcase blockchain, AI, cybersecurity, quantum computing, and more. You want to get in on the coming gold rush of future tech? and opportunity as an early adopter. Don't be left out. To register, go to bftexpo.com. That's blockchainfuturetechexpo.com. Thank you.
1: This is Richard Jacobs with Future Tech Podcast. My guests today are Andy Keewong, the CEO, and uh, Riley Weeks, the CSO, Chief Science Officer of Arc Engines. How are you guys doing?
2: We're doing well. How about yourself? Great. Thanks for having us.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Thanks for coming. So, uh, you know, I always start off with the basics.
3: What is Arc Engines? What's the premise of it? So, Arc Engines is a manufacturer and designer of rocket engines and propulsion systems for both launch
1: vehicles
3: uh, and satellites. So, we we utilize 3D printing and what's called design for additive manufacturing to to mm-hmm. optimize and enhance the performance of these propulsion systems.
1: So is the 3D printing that you're doing here on Earth? Because I've heard that uh, now what, <laughs> what people would like to do is have 3D printers up in space so, uh, you know, spaceships and everything could make tools for themselves
3: and other things while they're up there in space. Yeah, definitely. The uh, our, our printing is here on Earth. We use industry standard metal printing technologies uh, to to create our systems. But I I do know what you're talking about. There are companies like Made in Space. They have a 3D printer on the International Space Station, and that's that's definitely what the uh, trend is. Uh, when when I uh, worked at SpaceX, I've, I've heard uh, instructions given to uh, you know the 3D printing missions uh, from Elon that you know we want to get this. Uh, to to be working on on Mars, uh, do what you have to do to do that. So that's definitely something that uh, we've seen many companies trying to do, uh, especially for uh, asteroid mining companies. Whenever they mine the raw materials, they don't want to uh, bring back all of that to Earth. It's more efficient if they had uh, these uh, metal printing machines that could take their raw resources and and turn them into usable items. Uh, so yeah, you're, you 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 kind of hit the nail uh, straight straight on the head. Um, with, with, uh, added manufacturing. Well, i talked to,
1: you know, made in space and, uh, uh, I forget the name of the asteroid mining company, but, uh, planetary resources. So I've spoke to a right. few, that that's why I asked for the distinction. So, exactly. um, what's the, I mean, I'm sure weight is like, probably the biggest factor. Um, I'm sure 3d printing, you get much better efficiencies and, you know, this is not, um, usually mass production. So, I mean, it, you know, if you're making one rocket, that's going to go to Mars. You don't need to make a million of these uh, of an engine. So, I guess 3D printing right. is probably ideal for this kind of
2: application, right? Uh, yeah. So, you mentioned 3D printing helping to reduce weight, and that's uh, absolutely true and, and aid on efficiencies. And the, to kind of burrow into that a little bit more, 3D printing allows us to optimize geometries using sort of a, a biomimetic design process. So, the the internal geometries of the engine are far more efficient. And actually uh, mimic those found in nature, blood vessels and things like that. And so that that's yeah. really where, the, oh yeah, uh, that's really where the uh, the 3D printing shines is the ability to make those sorts of geometries, because standard subtractive techniques cannot get the the smooth curves or or the the complex shapes that 3D printing can.
1: Well, all right. So you said biomimicry, that's really cool. Um, you know, I don't know of any jet engines in nature, but you mentioned blood cells. So, where did you guys look to for inspiration, biomimicry biomim- wise? You know, what what systems in nature do you see that are amazing at um, propelling things?
2: Oh, so uh, it's a great question. Um, our our I guess our reference isn't so much uh, nature propelling things, but nature moving fluid. So, if you look at the the, the human circulatory system. It's an incredibly efficient method of transporting a fluid from one central point, the heart, to a bunch of points all over the body with very minimal energy requirement. There's very little turbulence in the actual flow. And it does it very efficiently for hundreds of years without much of an issue, right? For hundred years, I guess, without much of an issue. And so looking at that and the ability to go from one central point, uh, the heart, and branching out in a smooth fashion, that's where a lot of our our designs come from. So in a in a in the rocket engine, you have your single inlet, but you need to for for, for propellant. But you need to branch that out to multiple outlets at the actual injector face for combustion. And so we modeled our passages off of this sort of circulatory system branching pattern uh, to create an efficient uh, method of distributing the fluid.
1: Also oh, for combustion efficiency and completeness, that's why you wouldn't just blast everything out through a one huge hole you'd want to send it out through a, a whole bunch of smaller holes i guess to exactly say roughly. yeah so um how did you know that the uh you know the human body moves blood around efficiently like what i'm just curious about that like what what tells you or you know what literature what does literature say that uh, that shows
2: people that it's so efficient uh so from the literature itself i, I couldn't point you to anything exactly but we performed uh simulations that on similar uh, passages, the, the same sort of fractally branching passages, and found that that using that shape, the fluid flow was just far more efficient. There's very little head loss, very little uh, energy loss in moving fluid from one point to another following those sorts of shapes. We found that time and time again through various uh, uh, fluid mechanics simulations.
1: Well, can you give me an idea of the scale? Like how much more efficient is the human body at moving blood around versus, uh, you know, doing it with, uh, I don't know, pipes and emulating that system, let's say? Uh,
2: another good question. We found uh, in our comparison is, is more towards uh, injector plates. We haven't done the full human body simulation. That's a little outside of our uh, our abilities. Sure. But uh, our, our investigation, we see about a 70% improvement in efficiency following wow. the, the human body. Uh, pattern yeah
1: that's a lot yeah it's, so uh, it's what is it about the uh is it the so is it the uh the inside radius or sorry the in- yeah the inside uh features of a of a blood cell that make it efficient at transporting
2: the blood or what is it that's doing it what does it look like so it's the it's the vasculature itself the the for, for what we're looking at the blood cells themselves are are insignificant to the overall flow um but mm-hmm. what is the is, is how smooth the veins, arteries, etc. move. So every time that they need to make a turn in the body to go to a different direction, those turns are very smooth and, and there, there's no sharp corners. And when branching occurs, that is also done in a very smooth fashion so that there's no sudden changes causing the flow to kick into a, 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 a higher energy regime losing energy to the flow.
3: And and to give you a, a better idea of what um, what the current state-of-the-art is, uh, these injectors, uh, combustion chambers, they are machined. Uh, uh, traditionally, they uh, they uh, need to create engines that take into account uh, what angles a drill bit fit into their components or would it be able to fit on a lathe. Mm-hmm. So, you get a lot of 90 degree and Nine degree angles, a lot of sharp angles, actually um, inhibit fluid flow and and create a lot of turbulence. Therefore, a lot of energy loss. So, following the design that Riley just mentioned, we're able to greatly reduce the pressure di- pressure differential uh, across our our uh, inlet and outlets.
1: So, is uh, is most of the efficiency gain at these um, bends and curves and splits, or what, what about the straightaways? Is there anything in uh, blood
2: cells that makes it more efficient on the straightaways? uh Not necessarily, uh at least nothing that I know of it's it's uh definitely most <clears> significant <throat> at the branches and at the the curves,
1: okay, I didn't know if like there's ribbing or something you know inside of uh you know the blood vessel <laughs> yeah. that maybe makes it more laminar or something you just...
2: yeah, I understand yeah no uh, as far as I know, the straightaways would be the
1: same, uh, not huh. that there are straightaways in the engine, yeah yeah, well kind of but yeah like okay, I gotcha so all right, so the um You're looking to make engines for uh, what kind of rockets? Like, who who are your customers specifically?
3: So, uh, our our engines that we create, uh, basically, it's fuel um, fuel agnostic and thrust agnostic. So, we could create rocket engines for uh, both launch vehicles and satellites. Uh, So, there there are two different types of uh, uh, rocket engines uh, or, or. Rocket propulsion systems. There are solid rockets, and then there are liquid rockets. So we're, we focus more yeah. on the liquid rocket side. Um, we're using both mono propellant engines and bi propellant engines. So that gives us the ability to create engines ranging from millinewtons of thrust all the way to uh, upwards of forty to fifty thousand pounds of thrust. So the, on the upper end, we could create engines that are half the thrust of a, a SpaceX Merlin engine. Um, so that that kind oh, of, wow. kind of, kind of Idea of uh, what kind of long, uh, platforms we could service.
1: Okay, very interesting. So um, you're getting a lot better efficiency with the flow of the fluid. Um, what what kind of metrics? Uh, what kind of results is that giving you? You know, how much uh, more output per pound are you getting for your engines, or how would you how would you characterize uh, how much better your stuff is versus what's out there?
3: So in, in uh, um, overall, we're able to um, dramatically. Uh, change the shape of the engine and the internal passageways to the point where we're able to also greatly reduce uh, the part count on on a system. So overall with our efficiencies um, uh, in terms of fluid flow and and, uh, uh, heat transfer abilities, our systems come out at uh, upwards of half the weight of traditional systems. Wow, that's pretty significant. Yeah, yeah, when you and and the, you when you get rid of uh, a lot of unnecessary nuts and bolts and gaskets, uh, that really brings down your your weight.
1: So, it's half the weight and then the uh, the what other characteristics are, are improved combustion efficiency because of the geometry or whatever. Right.
3: Combustion efficiency, but also um, we're able to have a uh, cascading benefit throughout the whole system because like Riley said, we have a upwards of a 70% reduction in energy loss in, in our uh, engines, that means that we need less energy to move the same amount of uh, m- uh, fuel mass. So mm. upstream of the engine, we, we could downsize the valves and the turbopumps and the tanks uh, so that we, we could um, theoretically uh, lower the weight of the entire system even more uh so uh and that's all stemming from the basically the heart of the rocket inside the the motor and the engine
1: so what um you know when it when it comes to going into space i'm sure every uh, ounce matters tremendously like how important is it to reduce weight and to uh, be able to
2: make things more efficient it's pretty much the number one priority i mean if you look at uh one, one of my favorite examples is uh on on the space shuttle uh, the original space shuttle, that, that huge tank that it's attached to, everyone knows it as as orange or like a sort of an off-brown, that used to be painted white. Well, they realized that if they just didn't paint it, just paint, they would, they would be able to save 200 kilograms, and that was worth every cent. Sure. So, I mean, on a space shuttle, that thing is huge. It's massive. But 200 kilograms, and, and they did it. So every every pound every ounce matters. It's uh, behind the safety of the payload. That's pretty much the number one priority: is making things as light and efficient as possible. Yes, and
3: essentially for every kilogram that you eliminate from the engine, that's either another kilogram of fuel or another CubeSat that you could have on on your in your payload. So weight really does matter in these systems. Well, do you have any metrics? You know that come
1: from NASA or whoever? Like it's you know a hundred thousand dollars per kilogram or something saved anything like that.
3: Yeah, so for for CubeSats, um it, it costs anywhere between depending on the service provider, anywhere from $40 to $80,000 to launch one one uh, uh one unit CubeSat into low earth orbit. Uh so regarding um say um their launch vehicle companies like SpaceX are trying to get the the price per pound to be uh, be below what 10,000 or is it 1,000? Am I missing a zero there? <laughs> uh, I'm not
2: sure. I don't remember off the top of my head, but yeah, it, around there,
3: yeah so if um for for us uh being able to reduce the weight of the propulsion system especially for small launch vehicles that that could mean increasing the margins of our uh launch service providing uh customers by 20 to to 30%. Oh okay. All right, very good. And that could translate
1: to I mean per launch what what's your guess on what that could translate to in savings?
3: Uh per per launch, I mean it it could um for the, So there are multiple uh, facets for, for uh, lowering the cost for a for launch uh, vehicle uh, service providers. For, in terms of manufacturing, um, basically the manufacturing cost gets cut in half for these engines, but also uh, since they are light, more lightweight, it provides them a, a greater opportunity to have more payload onto the system. So it, just, it depends. Uh, of course, it varies per launch but per per launch for say um um a rocket class the size of what uh, electron rocket um it it could it could theoretically increase their their margins by a few hundred thousand dollars
1: hmm. okay very good are there any launches that wouldn't be possible or that will now be possible because of your efficiencies that you're gonna bring uh
3: so yeah there there are actually two main types of of uh vehicle platforms that could deliver uh, systems into space. Those are a classical uh, uh, rocket, your bipod rocket that goes up and then angles. And then there's the uh, hypersonic vehicles um, that, that are air breathing and, and go at very high um, speeds to, to get into space. So for us, we are actually helping to enable these hypersonic technologies to come online uh, regarding uh, fuel injection and and engine cooling with our geometries we, we could create uh, more or we could actually create the systems that are needed for uh, for some of these hypersonic vehicles to survive uh, Mach 6 and beyond so that's that's why I say where we're enabling uh, technology uh, for for us we're, we're just getting started with RIP I mean there there are things um, w- that we're, we're able to uh, create that enables a rocket engine to do things that it can't do uh, today, such as um, ignition, deep, very deep throttling, um, and and durability. Uh, so that's that's in a nutshell. Without me angering my CTO, what what, what I could say about us enabling different tech? Oh well,
1: well, the ones you mentioned. What is deep throttling, and what are some of the other? You know, why is it important to go Mach six or above?
2: Okay, uh, that's an interesting question. I'll start with the the deep throttling. Um, it throttling is just essentially running the engine at at a at a point that's not its its intended high efficiency design point. So most engines operate around their 100% throttle range, which is maximum thrust, maximum flow rate through the engine. Deep throttling is throttling down to very low percentages of uh, its a, like design point thrust. at the exact uh, point where deep throttling starts, I think it's around. 20% of, of maximum efficiency, but uh, being able to throttle that low uh, allows you to have a, a greater variety in, in, in mission and payload and allows you to greater Ooh. control the engine by being able to fluctuate that engine to just the right thrust required. Because if, if all of your engines operate exactly at hundred percent, you really need things to go just right and control becomes some some issue right if you could so think it's of like,
1: the, it's like having a race car where you can only it's like having a car or a race car where you can only floor it
2: you can't exactly. you know, gently move yeah. forward yeah. or backwards you know. yeah yeah it's uh okay you only floor it it gets really tricky when you're trying to park
3: so yeah well, exactly you, okay <laughs> you try to imagine what kind of uh vehicles that these very deep uh, low uh deep throttle engines uh enable if you could imagine any spaceship or, or vehicle from a science fiction game or film, that's that's pretty much what
2: these engines will be able to do. Yeah. Where you see them all having the main engines, but they're able to just kind of creep up and steady and, and dock with some port or, or land on some rock floating in space. That's all enabled by, by deep throttling.
1: Okay, wow. And then what about uh the Mach six threshold? You know, why why do you need to go even faster than that or that speed? So for, uh, for,
3: for launch vehicles, they need to attain a certain uh, delta V in order to achieve orbit, low Earth orbit, at least. And uh, the way um, hypersonic vehicles uh, that want to launch payloads into orbit, how they work is that they utilize the oxygen in the atmosphere in order to uh, enrich their fuel burning process. Typically, for normal launch vehicles, they bring their fuel and oxidizer with them on the vehicle. Uh, for hypersonic vehicles they need to go at such high speeds and um, utilize the oxygen in the air to enrich their their uh, uh the fuel combustion within their engines so they don't carry any oxidizer with them um so that's why they need to go at such high mach numbers to obtain the delta v needed to launch their payloads into space but also to collect enough oxidizer to to sustain the the burn of their very powerful engines so that that's why um. Uh. They, these vehicles, you know, travel super fast. Changes
2: when you go that fast. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's that's. Yeah. That's exactly my point. Um. At sure. those speeds, I think I, I've heard uh, a one. Uh, one. Uh, an engineer friend of mine described it as a. Um. At those speeds, it's like trying to run through jello. The just the skin friction of the air along the vehicle is so great. You get intense heating. And then the engine itself, that, those same high speeds cause, uh, uh, cause huge amounts of, of thermal energy buildup. So that's where a lot of our, our technology comes in, to build the ability to cool the engines while they're operating at in, in insane temperatures and be able to cool the body even while operating at insane temperatures is, is, sure. is where we're trying to go with this in terms of hypersonic vehicles, at least in part.
1: What, what's the fastest hypersonic vehicle that's, that's ever been created or used? Is that
3: a curiosity? That uh, uh, information
2: <laughs> probably
1: classified.
3: Yeah, I don't oh, know. If yeah, I, so. a favorite though. Yeah. Oh yeah, the Blackbird, the sr seventy
2: mm, it's a beauty.
3: Did they publish the uh the
2: max speeds on that? And I I heard... they published a max speed, but they don't know what the max speed is because they never found it. The, <laughs> the engines on so what that. What was thing, it? Out of curiosity. Yeah, it was around mock three i believe that but sounds pretty slow i think it's higher than that you think that's uh maybe it's that. three and a half but uh <laughs> it's, it's pretty quick they were worried that the the plane would fall apart before the engines themselves reach their max speed hmm. pushed it. Hmm. Yeah. probably yeah. So you're
1: talking about going to mach 6 and above
2: yeah yeah
3: wow. it's, uh, well that's what some of our customers are saying <laughs> yeah yeah exactly yeah we Yeah. yeah. The, uh, we we just want to enable them.
2: <laughs> if we can provide a piece of tech, that'll
1: give them there more power to them. Huh. Interesting. Okay. What what kind of temperatures are developed at the skin of a, of a rocket once it goes you know Mach 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6? Any estimates there?
3: Um, we need to bring in our CTO for that. To answer that question.
2: Yeah. So the uh, the the skin temperature yeah, in ballpark's think, you know thousand ballpark, degrees. 5,000? Uh, probably around a thousand kelvin at the really high mark is is probably a decent estimate but i i couldn't i couldn't say for sure Hmm.
1: okay so where are you guys at uh production wise you you just have concepts built have you actually made parts for engines that have flown and you've seen the performance increase is this at the wind tunnel stage like where are you at with it
3: yeah, basically, if you if you imagine um, uh, for for planes and and aircraft, we we are in the uh, wind tunnel stage with our rocket engines. So we're we designed them, we've manufactured them, and we we've tested a couple. We're actually gearing up for a big test this Saturday, um, but we're we're working towards uh, getting more data on our engine um, and finding uh um we're, we're we're currently in talks with certain uh, launch vehicle and satellite companies to begin implementing our systems onto their platforms so we can perform uh real world environment um suborbital or or in space testing so we're we're right there uh we're we're about to go into space uh we're we we just have a lot of testing to do on the ground first but we're we're beginning uh in the middle of those talks to do uh, uh real uh, environment testing
1: that's cool. And that's gonna happen, do you think when? This year or next year?
3: Uh so for us the the remainder of the ground test, we're looking to wrap it up uh towards the later end of this year. And then uh with the way our discussions are going now, we're looking towards uh sometime next year at, at the earliest for us to begin uh getting these systems up in the air and in space. Uh so and that's actually a very quick timeline for for space companies. But we're luckily for us in our our design manufacturing test methods we're able to rapidly uh uh, go through this this uh, process what
1: about for um you know regular commercial airliners you know i know you can't do everything but you know is there any chance to license your technology to improve their engines so they can cut weight and be
3: more efficient uh yeah so for uh other types of engines you're, you're talking about uh um uh by, uh, twi- uh bypass engines turbo uh fans turbo jet engines uh using uh compressors um and and turbine blades so for uh our technology basically we boiled down the rocket engine to its core uh, functionalities which is moving fluid and heat around um and shaving weight at wherever we can while maintaining a uh, maintaining a certain safety factor so when you boil it down, RIP can actually benefit any high-performing system that has critical heat or critical fluid flow, and you find that in a, a turbojet engine bypass uh, uh, engine. So, uh, yes, to answer your question, um, we can license our technology to improve uh, certain components such as uh, a turbine blade with cooling uh, internally uh, or other areas inside the combust. Uh, combustion section of the engine. Uh we we just uh, as a startup as you know we're we're ma- uh maintaining our focus on on the rocket engine part, but uh yes, in in the long run we're we're looking towards uh licensing RIP and tech to to improve other systems outside the space industry.
1: Okay. All right. very good. Um any other interesting developments coming that you can comment on or uh or it's all, you know, you gave me the good. generic plan and that's
3: that's about all you can say um let's see what's exciting we we're bringing in our own metal printer soon uh, uh so far we've been contracting out our our manufacturing so we'll we'll soon have a uh, eos m290 here on our uh in our facility at uc san diego so that's that's exciting for us <laughs> yeah, yeah that's that, that's gonna be awesome
2: uh um, wait for that uh yeah, yeah i could and,
1: have asked uh, more about the printing itself can you do composite printing or is it just the metal parts and then they need to be assembled or you yeah, know what's the next
3: the next gen in the metal printing itself right so yeah that that's a that's a great question and and the way we shape our our technology tree and patent portfolio is actually based on what we see on the horizon for for metal 3D printing so right now we see uh homogeneous uh metals materials uh that are able to be printed um and and the the main materials are uh, aluminum uh titanium stainless steel high nickel alloys um on, on the other upcoming, we see copper and niobium and some other exotic metals uh, being able to be 3D printed. Um, but further out, we see um, metal print technologies such as um, uh, functionally graded metals uh, that that can be printed. So this is, um, for example, you start your print off or one section of your wall with a copper for high heat transfer abilities, and then you you mm-hmm. slowly grade uh, the copper um, to a different material, such as a, an Inconel high nickel alloy with uh, really good strength properties. So we, we see uh, that technology as up and coming uh, in terms of metal printing. And, and we've, we've based our, like I said, our, our technology and, and uh, technology tree around what we see coming up. So we're, we're pretty excited about um, the, the other metal printing technologies out there. And you mentioned earlier in this, uh, in this podcast, uh, printing in space and off world. So zero gravity or, or microgravity printing is is something we we know is being worked on as well. Um, so we we see a lot of a lot of exciting developments coming up in this field. You know, an idea just occurred to me. I don't know if this is like ridiculous, but is know, there any ahead.
1: benefit to printing while moving? You know, three D printing at
2: high speeds or something while you're moving. Would there be any benefit to uh, that? So there's necessarily um, because I don't think it would it would actually affect the print at all. It's, as soon as you have a constant velocity, it all just becomes an inertial <laughs> reference frame. And...
3: Yeah, it's all it's all relative. Right, it? right. Are you talking about high high speeds, as in you're you're in orbit, <laughs> or are you here on Earth in a in a Concorde airplane going at high speeds and trying to print something? I mean, I either I don't know. Again, it
1: just it just popped into my head. I know it would take uh, thought I, to see if it's uh, useful at all. It just popped into my head.
3: Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. I, I, see what you're, I see what you mean. Because we, uh, in, in our conversations, uh, of course, with defense, they, they want to get metal printers out in the field, um, and it, it, it would make sense for them to look into technologies that enable them to have a good 3D print, uh, for example, onboard a carrier. When you, when you're out there in the, in the, in the, in the ocean, you, you, you see a lot of, <laughs> uh, you, you, you imagine people getting uh, seasick. Imagine these metal printers. Uh, going up and down with with all the the waves and, and motion, so there are, uh, um, and I know there there's tech and the the navy has been actually uh, investing some uh, quite a bit of money into that that kind of technology, um, 3D printing while in motion, um, whether aboard a ship or out in the field or or going at high speed. So you you, you actually hit on something pretty important, and that's um, the the ease of of, of metal uh, or or 3D printing in general taking it wherever with you, not, not just in space, but here, here on Earth. Um, so yeah, that's, that's something that um, uh, I, I, I almost forgot about, but something that we're, right. we're,
2: uh, we've we're definitely known about.
3: Yes, yeah, so I guess stab- stabilization would be really
2: important. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in fact, w- one of the interesting things is looking at the, the different properties of each of the methods for printing and how they handle movement and, and, and changing orientation. For example, the the print style print method that we use is called DMLS direct metal laser sintering, and it, it essentially laying down thin layers of of metal powder and using a laser to to trace the pattern of the print out and slowly build up powder layers until until you've melted out your piece. Now that mm. is incredibly sensitive to vibration and movement, so it's probably not the kind of thing that you could easily put on a on a, a space station or an aircraft carrier, especially because it's highly reliant on gravity and accelerations remaining zero. Um, whereas the okay. uh, FDM printing, which is sort of that, the classic um, plastic printing that most people know about, those are vi- really quite resilient to accelerations and, and changing in movement. So those, that's the kind of printing that are, is actually currently up on the International Space Station. And is probably the type of printing that will be most, best suited for uh, the military move application because it's resilience to movement
1: yeah it's funny i had a picture in my mind of uh you know years ago in the movie jackass they were trying to
2: tattoo one guy while they were driving <laughs> off road in a jeep <laughs> you know so the, yeah, anyway. it's basically that with the with the, the powder printer everything moving all over and what you'd end up with is probably just a mess of gobbledygook and not your actual part mm.
3: okay well very good so what, what's the best way for uh, interested parties to contact you uh, so for interested parties, they could e- shoot us an email um, at info uh, at dot enginescom That's uh, info at ARC-engines.com. Uh, uh, or they could give us a call um, at 858-869-9683. I, <laughs> um, so that, that, those two methods are the best way to contact us. So leave us a message. Um, we, we're happy to talk to, to other parties, interested parties out there. We're, we're all... Geeks at heart. So, whether it be mm-hmm. business-wise or technology-wise, we, we'd be happy to discuss.
1: All right, guys, well, that's great. Well, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having us, Richard. Yeah. Thanks, Richard.
3: Coming
0: to Dallas, Texas, September 14th, 15th, and 16th, 2018, the Blockchain and Future Check Expo. This is going to be a gigantic conference of over 5,000 people. We're going to be talking about blockchain and its applications. We're going to be talking about quantum computing, cybersecurity that started in 2012. Early adopters act now. They don't wait till later. They go out west first in their covered wagons. They find the biggest gold nuggets. If you consider yourself an early adopter, and you want to find the biggest nuggets, then you owe it to yourself to attend this upcoming conference. Blockchain is going to affect how we control and store our medical data, how we send money around the world, how we bank, and more. But artificial intelligence, quantum computing, and cybersecurity, will play a pivotal role in our lives as well. And that's why our next event, September 14th to the 16th at the Dallas Convention Center, is gonna have not only 5,000 plus attendees, but will showcase blockchain, AI, cybersecurity, quantum computing, and more. You wanna get in on the coming gold rush of future tech, and opportunity as an early adopter. Don't be left out. To register, go to bftexpo.com. That's Tech